Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us for this episode of AJHP Voices. Since its first release in 2012, the pharmacy forecast has aimed to heighten awareness of trends in healthcare that will affect the pharmacy enterprise and influence health system pharmacy's future directions. Continuing with this tradition, the 2024 report addresses public health, the mental health crisis, equity in healthcare, new disease paradigms and treatment innovations, workforce, and artificial intelligence. Joining me today to discuss some of the signals from this year's ASHP, ASHP Foundation Pharmacy Forecast Report are Dr. Denise Scarpelli, Vice President, Chief Pharmacy Officer, University of Chicago Medicine. Dr. Katie Derry, Director of Acute Care Clinical Pharmacy Programs, University of California Office of the President. Dr. Mandy Leonard, Senior Director for Drug Use Policy and Formulary Management at the Cleveland Clinic. And Dr. Suzanne Shea, Vice President, System Pharmacy and Clinical Nutrition, Sharp Healthcare. Denise, Katie, Mandy, Suzanne, welcome. There were 17 items in which 70% or more of the forecast panelists this year believe that the situation was likely to occur in the next five years in their geographic area. There were also a few items where the likelihood was high, but preparedness capabilities lingered pretty far behind. This is where I'd like to focus much of our time this afternoon. Let's start with the public health chapter. 73% of the respondents indicated that the gap between rural and urban morbidity and mortality will grow significantly wider. And in their recommendations in the chapter, Pam Schweitzer and Marie Chisholm Burns included a recommendation that health systems should work to overcome barriers barriers that limit access to telehealth, including telepharmacy in rural communities. Each of you live in states that have significant rural populations. Denise, let me start with you. Do you see telehealth as a critical component of efforts to close the morbidity and mortality gap between rural and urban populations? I think telehealth will help. But I also see these same challenges in the urban area with access to healthcare. I think one of the challenges is even when we started doing telehealth a few years ago, more predominantly, was our patients being able to have the technology to do it. So do they have the right phones? Do they have the right computers to be able to do this? Also an education gap of how to use these tools to be able to access telehealth and even simple Wi-Fi services. So I think it will help bridge the gap, but we're gonna to need to have public services to help individuals be able to have the technology to be able to do these types of visits. Got it. Katie, in the view of the University of California system, what are your thoughts? Yeah, thank you for having me, Dan. And I agree with what Denise just mentioned. You know, if you look at our urban and rural populations, you know, there's no real definition for urban and rural. And to answer this question, I had actually gone to the census that was completed in 2020 to look at what actual percentage of the population of California lives in rural areas. And it's relatively small. It's just a huge landmass that we have to cover. And so I do think that, you know, like Denise said, we do need to have the infrastructure of not only can they access telehealth, whether that be through internet, computers or telephone services, but also do they have the ability to do that in a healthcare system that meets 
their needs. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to reach out to those populations, especially those that live in areas where they might have to drive an hour or up to three hours to actually access some sort of health care. That's just untenable for most of our population. It takes a huge amount out of their day and really takes them away from their activities of daily living. So I think that we've got a lot of opportunity and I hope telehealth bridges that gap. You know, I think also the face-to-face visit with your providers, whether that be through Zoom or some other form of technology, I think that's really going to be helpful just to put a face to a name and whatnot and make the providers feel like they're making a connection to their patients. Now, there was some crossover, as you would expect, between the public health and mental health chapters. And there's a lot to unpack in terms of survey responses, recommendations, and the preparedness gaps. In their recommendations in the mental health chapter, Todd Nesbitt and Tanya Fabian included two recommendations around education and skills training for all direct care staff related to mental health and substance use disorders. They also included a recommendation for health systems to integrate behavioral health providers in primary care settings, including pharmacists. There were also some interesting findings in the survey responses. 70% of the respondents indicated that 50% of health systems will expand screening, prevention, and treatment services to address adolescent substance use disorder. Yet only 52% indicated that in all states, pharmacists will routinely initiate and modify medications for opioid use disorder. And at the same time, 71% agree that pharmacists are prepared to initiate and modify medications for opioid use disorder. So 71% believe we're prepared to treat opioid use disorder, but only 52% believe this will be an actuality in the next five years. Reactions? Suzanne, let's start with you. I think some of the preparedness component has to do with staffing. Do we have pharmacists that are trained in behavioral health? And when we take a look at that at Sharp Healthcare from a residency opportunity, that's actually under discussion right now. Is this an area we need to be training pharmacists for the future as the mental health crisis continues throughout the country? So I think that I would infer part of the respondent's reaction to that question is, do I have staff that can participate in support of mental health? The other piece of this is around what's some baseline training for all staff. So are there mental health components that all staff needs to learn, like we've learned CPR and those other things that are kind of basic training elements? Mandy, what would you add on? I agree with what Suzanne has said. Um, Even looking at we have a behavioral health or PGY2 in psychiatry and one of our health system hospitals here, but we've been unable to fill that. So I think we also need to do some grassroots efforts within pharmacy schools, within the PGY1 programs to talk about the opportunities that exist for pharmacists with specific training, you know, in behavioral health to help with this. I agree with Suzanne, you know, there should also be some efforts with, you know, basic training. I believe in the chapter, they talked about an aid kit or mental health aid that would be available for pharmacists to take. And that would be great, you know, to do that. Or do you start in core areas where we have our ambulatory care pharmacists, you know, and others in the emergency room and and things like that, where we may see those patient populations. 
I also think that depending on the state that you practice in and the different roles, you know, we're looking at consult agreements. So what is the pharmacist actually allowed to do? And I think at least in the state of Ohio, they've been more open with us doing more consult agreements. So I think that's an opportunity for us to look at what the pharmacist might be able to do under the discretion of a physician, but have some independence in helping get to more patients to help with those behavioral health disorders or opioid use disorders. Denise, I saw you shaking your head at times as both Suzanne and Mandy were providing some insights on this. What about at University of Chicago Medicine? I think when I read the survey question and thought about how I would answer it was when I think our pharmacists are prepared to make the adjustments, but I don't know if they're prepared to deal with mental health patients. So I think that's where the breakdown is. I think they know the drug regimens, but I don't know if they have the skill or the training to interact with those patients or feeling comfortable how to interact with those patients, how to have that conversation around the dose adjustment. So I think it really starts with us working with, I think, man, I think you talked about the grassroots efforts with pharmacy schools, you know, having that training at those schools. I know as an organization, we are talking about how do we address the mental health issues and bringing those services in the communities that we serve. As I think about having our pharmacists being involved in that, I don't know if they feel comfortable because I don't think they have the training to be able to do that. So is there supplemental training that organizations can do to prepare pharmacists to be involved in this? Because I do agree from a drug regimen, they have the skill set to do that, but really interacting with those patients and making the right clinical decision for those patients and interacting because I think they can take on some of that work. They just need the training. Katie, similar perspectives from the University of California system? Yeah, I would 100% agree. I think that this is a huge ask of our pharmacy community, but I think we can rise to the occasion. Within the UC system, we only have one PGY2 psychiatry position at UC San Diego, and I think there's a need for it in many of the other parts of our UC domain. I agree, though, that I think that we do need some more training on that, how to approach these situations, especially with patients who may not be stable in terms of their disease state, but also how do we approach them in a way that they feel like they're being heard and that they're going to have that treatment accepted so that we have a long-term benefit for these patients. And I think, you know, our providers and our pharmacists really do want to provide the best care possible. So I think there's some training that needs to be done, but it's definitely something I think we need to jump into first. Moving on to the care equity domain, which certainly isn't unrelated here, 75% of the respondents agreed that to maintain their nonprofit status, health systems will have to demonstrate a specified level of investment in programs and services to reduce health disparities in their communities. And 76% indicated that value-based payer contracts will include incentives when health systems demonstrate care equity, things such as similar outcomes of care, regardless of race, gender, location. Mandy, when you look at this from the perspective of someone who's responsible for drug use policy and the formulary at the Cleveland Clinic, do you share those expectations? I think the bottom line is it's the right thing to do for patient care. The one thing that I think about is if we look at these value-based payer contracts to include these types of incentives, the thing that comes to mind is the fact that are we able to obtain the data easily in order to be able to provide that back to the manufacturer, to the payer, to make sure we can demonstrate that a lot of large systems or others 
you know, might have the datalytic capacity to do that. But I'm, you know, I guess the question is, does every organization have that ability to do that? So I think it might depend on the organization, how readily they're able to provide it. I think once again, that would push the bar forward to, you know, move in that particular direction. Denise, similar experiences at University of Chicago Medicine, or even based on what the conversations you have with your colleagues in Chicago or across the state of Illinois? Here at University of Chicago, we are looking at the diverse population and we have metrics around that. In all our value-based contracts, we do this today. So we look at the quality metrics that we were measuring for the value-based contracts. We look at it as a whole, and then we have it broken out to subsets. So, you know, African-American population, Hispanic, because we are servicing a very diverse population. And a lot of our contracts are based around that. So we're making sure that we're providing health equity across and then figuring out different strategies for different population, because we know one size doesn't fit all. So as a group, we meet and we discuss what are different tactics that we can do to address some of those underserved individuals in the community. But we are looking at this today and we're able to pull it out and we report to the diverse community we serve today. Got it. Suzanne, Katie, you know, California. Suzanne, you're in Southern California. Katie, you have responsibilities across the state. Similar experiences as Denise was talking about at the University of Chicago. Suzanne, let me start with you. Yes, uh, very similar. You know, it's interesting. So Sharp resides within San Diego County, which is a very large county, and we butt up against Tijuana. So we have a large Latino population in the southern part of the county. So our demographics there look very different from how they look in East County or in the middle of the city. So we are very sensitive and have been for a number of years to our different patient needs and demands and, you know, meeting them where they are. There's something around the Sharp experience where we want everybody who comes to a sharp physician or hospital to feel like, you know, we're meeting them where they are. So I feel like we've spent a lot of time and we continue to spend a lot of time. It's not perfect, but as we provide services in multiple languages and meet the needs of the value-based agreements and continue to work with our payers in these areas as well to design specific services. The other component that's out there in, in recent data is we have a very much large and growing population of patients who are elderly. That's a little bit new for Southern California. The average age of the population here is still in the late 30s, but that's changing dynamically. So we have to take a look at things like technology and telehealth and access, not only from a geographic standpoint, but also from age and all those other components. So there are a lot of moving parts at this time that we're examining. Katie, a similar approach with the UC system? Yeah, you know, UC is a really interesting system. We are a set of six academic health centers and five academic medical systems, meaning that UC Riverside has a medical school but does not have an associated hospital and the rest of them do. So we are lucky enough to have the UC Health Data Warehouse where the information from our patients, we're able to aggregate that and look at that from a California-wide standpoint. So we can take all of this information and talk about this from a UC-wide perspective. And considering that equity is considered one of the UC systems 
system's core values. But we take this very seriously. There's a significant number of committees, and I can't just label one or two of them that are working towards this. But within the pharmacy group specifically, we have a number of pharmacy collaborative teams who work to define how they're treating their patients in the best way possible. And that information sharing among all of these five academic medical centers and the pharmacy groups has really led to a lot of collaborative efforts. You know, Suzanne just mentioned something along the lines of providing information in the language that patients best understand the information coming at them. You know, and we're looking at a way to collaborate on ways to translate all of our products across the UC system in one set and one time so that we save money, but also capture the, I think we are up to 15 different languages for the patients that we treat. So there's a lot of work going into this. And again, because this is one of our core values at UC, we're trying to do our best by our patients. And a lot of this is being done through our UC Health Data Warehouse. In the care equity chapter, Cunningham and Barrett and Fine recommended that equity assessments of evidence-based healthcare quality metrics must become a standard method to assess quality of care used by healthcare systems and payers. And they went on to suggest that to achieve this goal, that the healthcare system and pharmacy leaders should encourage all forms of quality metrics to be stratified for at-risk populations, including those on the basis of race, ethnicity, age, sex, gender, LGBTQ plus status and rurality. And Denise, I think you just actually answered this, but it sounds like that's what's already happening at the University of Chicago Medicine. That is correct. We started this a couple of years ago as we got into more value-based contracts, but it was even before that. We just started looking as a health system because we are servicing such a diverse population. We want to make sure that we are treating everyone equivalent, right? And we want to make sure that they're having positive outcomes. We know every patient needs to be treated a little bit differently. It could be a cultural decision. It could be a lifestyle decision. And we need to make sure that we have strategies around that to make sure that we're providing health care at the level the patient needs. And a lot of times too, you know, if you treat all the patients the same, we may not get the same results. So we have to really understand that population. How do they perceive healthcare? How do they want their healthcare? So we have been being able to stratify the data across the different populations, if it's race, ethnicity, where they live, and we are measuring that and we're measuring our outcomes. And the ones that we're not performing well on, we have task force and we're discussing what we need to do differently. And we even have patients involved. So we have the voice of the patient. So we understand. And pharmacists are embedded in these teams. We're actually seeing pharmacists having some more positive outcomes than the provider. So for example, we have a hypertension-run clinic by pharmacists. So we have patients that get referred to that clinic that we can't get the hypertension under control. And we saw a 30% better response from the pharmacists doing that. And again, it's that this population that we're starting to identify based on our value-based contracts. But we've been doing this for years of looking at based on race, ethnicity, et cetera, so that we're giving the proper care. So Denise, I'm interested in that nexus in this particular setting between the patient involvement and deep pharmacist involvement as well. Has that been eye-opening for some of the patients to see you know, what pharmacists can do? Yeah, I think it's a lot of education to the patient what the pharmacist can do, but I feel like there's a different trust with the pharmacist and they're more comfortable to share things than their provider. So I think that's why the pharmacists are having a more positive result. But there's a lot of education with that patient of why you're meeting with the pharmacist, you know, and they're they're an extension of the provider, but the patients are open to it, but there's a little education up front. We do feel that the pharmacist is getting more information out of the patient because of that relationship and they're spending a little bit more time with that patient compared to the providers. 
I'm going to touch on a topic where I believe each of you expressed some disagreement with the survey participants when this was discussed during your panel discussion at the mid-year meeting. 78% of the survey participants indicated that it was likely that in the next five years, formulary and policy decisions for ultra-high-cost drugs, rare and orphan drugs, gene therapy, CAR-T, that those will be decided by payer or service line stakeholders and as a result will weaken the scope of and authority of health system-based pharmacy and therapeutics committees. Again, I watched as each of you were responding in the panel discussion. Mandy, let me start with you. How do you react to that? Well, I think I'm a little passionate about this because this is my job. And so it looks like, am I going to have a job coming up? But I think how I look at this is that we will always have a PNT committee that has authority within the system. I think there just might be some different ways to look at processes that we do. So, you know, as I mentioned, when we take a look at what we feel like evidence-based medicine is, right, because that's the core of your evaluation when you're looking at a drug, right? The safety, the efficacy, and then you look at cost, right? So it could be capitated cost on the inpatient side. It could be reimbursement models in your infusion centers or outpatient 340B, non-340B contracts, all that kind of stuff. But then you get these high cost medications that could cause financial toxicity to your organization. And then you start to weigh risk versus benefit because we want to take care of the patient and things of that nature. So I think all of that are core to what health system PNT committees do. I just think there's going to be some additional layers on top of that as we make these decisions about high cost medication. So some PNT committees already have bioethics involved. Some PNT committees get their, you know, CFO involved on these high cost drugs. So the point being is I think there's just going to be added layers as these new high cost drugs come out, but it still will ultimately be the decision of the PNT committee, at least in my organization, but there's going to be different tentacles, I think, that come in as we look at those decisions. And we still have to take into consideration, obviously, the payer perspective, right? Like, are you getting paid for these medications? Are you not getting paid? You know, you have to look at your charge master and things like that. So it's just much more complex with these medications. But I think the principles are still the same. Katie, what about California? I 100% agree with what Mandy just indicated. So across the UC system, we've got a variety of the P&T committees, but FDA is doing their job and trying to move medications that are going to benefit patients forward as fast as they possibly can. And sometimes all the clinical information isn't quite complete when they bring these medications to market. I really think that's the space where P&T committees need to live. Most of these committees are used to living in the clinical space. You know, what's this compared to that medication? And that's, I think, central to how they function. But as Mandy indicated, there's now pieces that we have to consider. I mean, I think if we think back to when aducanumab came onto the market a couple of years ago, that decision was somewhat taken out of the hands of the PNT committee because really the payer perspective changed with aducanumab. We had a whole new way of thinking about how this is going to be reimbursed, whether or not CMS was going to cover it, whatnot. And then we had to bring in, okay, so if we do treat these patients, we have to enroll them in a trial. And our PNT committee had never really dealt with something 
something like that. So, you know, Mandy just said it was different tentacles. I completely agree. It's bringing in your financial group to talk about this, bringing in your authorization group to see what methods they're going to take to see if these patients can get that because you want to provide that care also in an equitable way. Make sure this is, this is the have and have nots, not by insurance, but also who needs this medication. And I think that's just a new way of thinking about it. So I completely agree with Mandy. You know, I come from the same world as Mandy, so I think I'm as strong as an advocate as she is. I think that we still have a place for these PNT groups. That's not to say that the payers aren't going to play a significant role in it because they are. So it's just a new way of thinking about it, but I don't think it diminishes the decision-making capacity of our PNT committees. Suzanne, from the CPO perspective, I'll start with you and then turn to Denise as we work through this one. Well, I can get passionate here too, because we started a sharp, wide formulary committee in 2020. So we had the entity-based ones, but to have the overarching one for sharp is relatively new and we've been successful. So with the anacanumab example and others, we're already pulling in different components of the organization with the CFOs weighing in, our physicians weighing in. We've established a practice if something's on the fence that a physician can come in with a short set of slides to go over the reason for the request for the drug. So we built what I see as a strong and kind of powerful component in at Sharp Healthcare, and we're starting to discuss. I think we have the infrastructure as, you know, more and more expensive products come in. We're looking at CRISPR technology this week, right? So that's been all in the news. So we have these things coming in, and to everybody's point, it has to be equitable. We're not doing this just for one set of patients in one part of the county or another. This has to be a fair process for everybody. And then Katie touched on, you know, the FDA really pushing through certain drugs faster. We've kind of called that to task on a couple of occasions and said, you know, in the committee comprised of folks, physicians, pharmacists, clinical experts, and others have weighed the evidence and done a good job of that and saying, you know what, it's too soon to know if this is the right drug for our patients. So I agree with everybody. These committees are strong and maybe we're evolving a little bit, but, you know, let's bring the right people into the conversation as needed. Denise, what would you add on? No, I have to agree with everything the ladies are saying. We actually have a subcommittee just on gene therapy alone because we know it's different criteria. So we're building out different criteria for these drugs that we want to make sure that everyone's following. But PNT is the one eventually signing off. So I think PNT is, I mean, they're still doing all the clinical pieces, but there has to be that payer and financial piece as part of it and creating criteria. The other thing that we've done around PNT, especially with the high cost drugs, since most of these drugs are outpatient, we have created our PNT committee to be both inpatient and outpatient. So everyone goes there to present so that we make that decision as an organization. Cost is shared. We know payers that who's covering, who's not. I agree with Suzanne where she said it's about health equity. You know, we look at who's paying for it, is Medicaid paying for it? It's just not, you know, around the commercial patient. But we have created subcommittees that are reporting in. So I think PNT is not going to go away. I think it's going to be more complex. And I think if organizations are not looking to restructure their PNT, I think they're missing it. Is that I think this is where the high cost drugs are going to fall in. They just have to look at it differently. Shifting gears a bit. Workforce violence was also addressed in the chapter. And during your presentation at the mid-year, during one of the one-on-one discussions that we did, I asked the person next to me who happened to be the COO of a hospital, what keeps him up at night? And he said violence and the risk of a shooting in the ED from the perspective of a COO. 
Yet only 54% of survey respondents expected that concerns about workplace safety will become a major deterrent for recruitment to the health professions. Denise, where does the risk of workplace violence fall on the list of things that keep you up at night? I would say it's in my top five. I think because where we're located in Chicago, there's high gun violence. I actually had a pharmacist get carjacked on the way to work last week. So it's something that's in our face every single day. Most of the gunshot victims in Chicago come to our trauma center. So I always worry about our pharmacists and technicians that work in the ED. I check on them. And a lot of times as those victims come in, if it's gang violence, the gang who is fighting them shows up in our ED. You know, we've added extra security precautions. So we've had some scares where we've had, a we call it a cold silver, that there's someone on the campus with a gun. So it's something that I think about every single day. It's something that happens at our campus almost every single day, maybe not internally, but around it. So it is part of my top five. My other concern is around recruitment. You know, historically, we would recruit pharmacists from all over the country. In the last couple of years, we have seen a decrease in that because they're afraid. They're seeing what's in the media and they're not 100% sure if it's safe to move to Chicago. So, you know, we talk about the safety precautions that we have in place, things that we've done. And, you know, we have our other pharmacists that work in some of these areas share that. But it is a concern for me, especially since it's something that living in Chicago, we're all facing every single day, no matter where you're living in the city. Suzanne? I agree with Denise. It's definitely in my top five list of concerns. We have pharmacists at our hospitals who are on the floors in the ICUs, in the EDs, like I'm sure everybody does. And we often hear more stories about at management meetings, our leadership meetings about patient violent encounters with nurses, but our pharmacists are right there as well. So I think that's something that we have to make sure those stories are told. But at the same time, what are the precautions? What are the safety things that are taking place? And also we use code silver and that our security staff is nearby and everybody is trained and informed. Unfortunately, there are events that happen on the campuses and people certainly hear about that. Recently, we had an issue with a family with a dying patient that was making threatening remarks to staff. So this is real life and it probably happens every day. You just hear a little bit about it here and there. I think Denise makes an excellent point about let's talk to our staff and ask these questions. You know, just come out and, and ask. Have you been part of or adjacent to what you would consider an act of violence, or do you have concerns about violence in the workplace? We've not been great. I'll just use myself as an example. Is that being a leading question as we're doing rounds? I think it's important. And I think when people feel like it's something that's being discussed and talked about, much like mental health issues, then those concerns wane a little bit. I mean, they're always in the back of our mind. I mean, look what's going on across the nation. But I think there's this other component that as healthcare providers, professionals. If you want to be in healthcare, you're going to be. So how do we continue those community and grassroots efforts and out at the colleges of pharmacy to bring folks in and say, yes, there are these things going on, but they go on across the nation. I mean, you you could work almost anywhere, unfortunately, and encounter violence. So I think also not to go through rose-colored glasses, but just why are we in healthcare and what are we here to do and really continue to tell those stories and the impact that pharmacists have on our patients and no matter what setting they're in, but to be honest and address the question of workplace violence. 
No, I've heard several of you use the word community in your uh, responses to questions today. And the recommendations related to violence prevention that are included in the forecast are aimed at health system leaders at large, not only pharmacy leaders. And this focus on health system and even community level recommendations is really a theme throughout this year's pharmacy forecast report. Katie, How do you see health system pharmacy leaders' ability to influence the larger health system and community issues? Did it surprise you this year to see that there is such a focus on recommendations that are really directed at the health system leaders and talk about change at the level of the community and how will pharmacy leaders help drive that? I think there's a couple of ways of doing this. I know that within our larger UC system, there's a lot of hospital building going on. One of the things that has been a large part of the discussion is what does the community say about the UC hospitals that are being built? What level of services and how do the community members access those level of services at those sites? That's one piece. You know, if you're building a new infusion center, does the pharmacy where the patient is going to take those medications away from their visit, is it in a place that they can walk in and see it? Can they access? Access those services quickly. I think that's one piece. And I, I know that that's something that, for example, at the UC San Diego Hospital, the New Infusion Center, they were really strongly advocating for that discharge area of the pharmacy to be something that was accessible to communities. But also, I think from the standpoint of how we really look at the community level recommendations is making sure that we seem like an open system to access so they can come to us for maybe public health initiatives. They can take away, whether it be like COVID tests when we were sending them out, making those more readily available, those vending machines for those types of access for those tests at the sites. I think that's something that we can do. In terms of how pharmacy leaders specifically reach out to the community, I think that's something when I asked our UC pharmacy chiefs that, that was something that really got their thoughts churning. And I think they're really actively thinking about doing that. Davis is building a a large community service center as well. So I think they're really on the forefront of thinking about how to access the community at large. But I think that's something that we're really going to have to think about as we go forward. How does pharmacy specifically reach out to do that, not just our larger health community, although I think we play a significant role at the table for those conversations. Mandy, what about at the Cleveland Clinic, pharmacy leaders influencing the health system leaders and even community level interventions? Yeah, no, I think it's really important, the different pockets within the Northeast Ohio area that are underserved. I think one of the ways is looking to make sure we have our community pharmacies in areas in which they need to serve the population. So when we kind of take a look at if we're going to open a new pharmacy, you know, we should put it in a community that it's needed. And, you know, if it's a charitable pharmacy, 340B, you know what I mean? Give back to the community and have some other services available. I think the other thing that we've done is we've worked with our physician partners when they've done community initiatives to make sure that the pharmacists are there. I without one really interesting thing that was done by one of our residents a few years ago was working with the community and having pharmacists go into barber shops. So when patients are getting their haircut, that they can talk to a pharmacist and some blood pressure management was going on. So how about us going to them, even though I mentioned like having a pharmacy and them coming to us, but what else can we do to get to them in their normal day-to-day activities? And I think that pharmacy has had a little bit of influence and we really want to make sure we stay involved with that. Denise, you've made a number of references to the community in which the University of Chicago Medicine lives. What would you add? As an organization, the whole entire leadership is focused on the community and how do we bring services to them? 
And pharmacy is always the seat at the table. And we've been like this for years and everything, you know, we're building primary care practices that are more in the community because we know it's hard for patients to come back to campus. But pharmacy is involved. A couple of years ago, when the civil unrest happened on the south side of Chicago, 60 pharmacies closed overnight and our pharmacy was the only one open. So we stood up mail order services overnight, was able to service that population. It is still a pharmacy desert of the patients that we serve. And sometimes it's not easy to build a brick and mortar very quickly. So we continue to expand our mail order services to those patients. So we have pharmacists embedded in clinic. We identify a patient that maybe not have the pharmacy resources in their community, and we enroll them in our mail order services. And we even tell our providers, if you have a patient that's having difficulty getting their medications to enroll them. And we also have our 340B dollars as well to be able to give more cost-effective drugs if they can't afford their medicine. But everything that University of Chicago does is about the community and how do we bring more to the community. But pharmacy is the seat at the table. So I wouldn't say it's pharmacy owned. I would say the organization owns it. And we all look to see your piece of the organization. What can you do to bring more services to those patients to bring the health equity? So when I think about all the things that we talked about, mental health services, public health, health equity, it's things that as an organization we're talking about at the higher level, but pharmacy has a seat at the table and as part of those strategies that we're doing to bring to the community. Got it. Let's wrap up with an issue that's ubiquitous in society today, AI. 86% of forecast respondents indicated that integration of EHR data with clinical decision support algorithms will automate drug dosing adjustments, things like renal or weight-based or age-based dosing. Yet 80% of the respondents also expect that a high-profile case involving patient harm related to AI used for patient care decisions will accelerate government regulation of this technology. Denise, as someone who serves on a state board of pharmacy, I'd like to start with you. Will AI be on the state board agendas over the next five years? They've been on the agenda for the last couple of years, especially at our national meetings. The concern is, as we allow AI to do some work, there's going to be laws that change. And I think about things that we've implemented over the last couple of years, you know, like remote work or collaborative agreements, there are states that still haven't signed on for that. So I think artificial intelligence is going to be a heavy lift, but we're all talking about it at the boards of pharmacy level. But I know there's going to have to be laws in place for this to be allowed. And I think some states will be early adopters. And I think some states that scrutinize everything may not be. So it may not be something that's across all 50 states, but it is a topic I would say the last three or four years have been at most of the boards of pharmacy national meetings discussed. Katie, what are your thoughts as you look at this from the perspective of the entire UC system? I mean, I think there are some places where AI can play a role in terms of drug dosing adjustments. The proof is in the pudding, right? I'd have to see it. I'd have to see what kind of algorithms they're considering. If you think about all of the different things that could potentially cause a dose adjustment in a critical care pharmacist, whether that be not just their serum creatinine, what's going on with their ins and outs, what kind of renal replacement therapy are they getting? Also, is the weight a wet weight or is it a dry weight? All of those things, I think they really play into it. And that's what we tend to think about as people who are making these dose adjustments. I don't think that it's impossible that AI can do that. I think I'm just skeptical to see how well it does it and how consistently it does it. I think it could probably get to, you know, 50, 60, 70% of the time it's correct, but that's not good enough, right? It has to be in the 95, 98% of the time. And I haven't seen something yet that is that consistent. So I think that we've got some work to do before we trust AI to make those decisions for us. 
So Susanna, I imagine it's part of the conversation at Sharp Healthcare as well. It is. It's actually a very active conversation that's occurring. So we're implementing EPIC as our EHR coming up in March. And EPIC is starting to work in the AI area. So they're testing and building algorithms. Asked our physician, who is one of our technology officers, if you will, about how soon will we see this? And he pauses and he says, mm, not this year. But there's a lot of discussion. So I feel like it's going to be here sooner than later. And it's going to have certain capabilities. We have clinical decision making right now that's embedded in our systems. So to me, I can see it going up a notch and making some of that faster. But to what Katie is getting to and having all the inputs about the patient being accurate, I feel like we'll always need a human being to assess and look at the output of AI. There are just certain things about us as people that I don't foresee in the next five years that a machine or augmented learning is going to be able to encompass the totality of that. Could it happen in the future? Who knows? Mandy, when you think about your work with drug use policy, managing the PNT process, the formulary, where does it come into play? I think, obviously, as Suzanne mentioned, as we know, our EHRs probably have some sort of, obviously, clinical decision support, which may mimic AI a little bit, but not fully into it, right? So inline dosing, right? It knows whether to dose on adjusted or ideal. So we have some of that, but I think the more complex algorithms I think we need to take baby steps. So heard some presentations about, you know, do pharmacists have to verify a colase order? I don't know. I don't know if I would ever change a colase order. I'm not board certified in critical care, but I probably wouldn't change it. So are there certain drugs that make sense that we may be able to do some automatic verification if in the background, all this patient criteria is met? I think what Katie's example is like, the finish line, like all the way at the end, you know, and who knows, it could be five years from now, maybe two years from now, I don't know. Or, you know, I was talking even acetaminophen orders, right? So what are the criteria that a patient might have to have and maybe their metrics or whatever, that it would be okay that a order for acetaminophen is automatically verified and a pharmacist doesn't see it. I don't know what that looks like. I know some organizations have tested what a pharmacist would do versus an algorithm and looked at discordance and concordance, but that gets back into what Denise just said, what are state boards of pharmacy going to allow us to do? So I think there's a lot to kind of unpack there, but I think we need to have the conversations because it's going to be fast and furious as it comes down the road. And I think we just need to know how to kind of process it and maybe do some more pilots and things like that to prove that we're comfortable with it. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Drs. Denise Scarpelli, Katie Derry, Mandy Leonard, and Suzanne Shea for joining us to discuss the 2024 Pharmacy Forecast Report, which was recently published on hhp.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.